As we uh, get started here this morning, I want to let you know where we're going with the series in case you have family in town or friends and you want to invite people. Uh, Here's what you can look forward to this morning. We're talking about the love of God. And then next Sunday will be the joy of God. This series will be Christmas through God's eyes. What does Christmas look like from God's perspective? And so we're going to a lot of times we know what it looks like from ours. We're going to look at what does it look like through his eyes. So we'll look at the love of God this morning, then the joy of God, then the peace of God, then Christmas Eve, the Son of God. Christmas Eve, we have three services, three, five, and seven. And so whatever works with your uh, Christmas schedule and your family, we've got something for all of you. And so uh, Son of God, and then December 25th, the hope of God. So that's the series, and that's where we're going to roll uh, over the next month. And... Uh, Let's uh, commit all of that to the Lord this morning and uh, just thank him and then we'll get into the message. Father in heaven, thank you for last night. It was a privilege to serve you. It was a privilege to have your joy. It was a privilege to reach out. And uh, Lord, we bless you. What, what a superb thing to be a part of what you're doing. And Lord, we do that in a lot of different ways. It isn't just last night, but last night kind of, caught it in a photograph really well and pictured your heart really well. And I pray that that will translate this morning as we look at this series. Lord, uh, it's not going to do any good for me to tell people how much you love them. I really ask this morning you would validate your own perspective, what you've given us. And uh, so we seek you for your spirit to be at work this morning. Lord, some of us know you well. Some of us uh, walk in and love the relationship we have with you. Some of us are wondering how you could ever like us if you ever knew what you we really know about ourselves and others that think I've done too much and that can't be true for me anymore. Lord, could you put that to rest this morning and uh, give us your perspective? And we seek you for that as we enter into this Christmas season. And Jesus, we pray this for your sake. Amen. All right. All right. So with the name of the series that we're going with is the Incarnation. All right. And uh, it's. If you go to John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Uh, it's, it tells us something about the beginning of uh, what God was doing. And then a little further in John, it says this, And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, there's other mythologies, and if you go into the Greeks and the Titans and their pantheons of gods and that kind of stuff, you kind of get these weird, um, twisted pictures of God's interaction with man. But the thing is, they always come out awkward. There's always anger or revenge or these kind of sort of things. But when you see, from God's perspective, what came out of this merger was good. It says, when Jesus came to us, he came to us in what? Grace and truth. Where else do you find that in our world today? Grace and truth. Right? It says that this word that became flesh, God among us, God walking on our turf, that the expression of it was grace and truth. And I think that's a great word as we head into uh, Christmas this year and uh, all the things that are going on in our world. Of course, again, another shooting down in San Bernardino. Our world needs Jesus' message again. The word incarnation uh, is not a Greek word or a Hebrew word. It's actually a Latin word, right? And it it means simply this. If you look it up, Latin, it means in and carnal flesh, 
All right. Now, there's a very shoe leather type of expression of this that you would recognize uh, it, this word carno being used. We use it in chili con carne. All right. Anybody ever had chili con carne? Right. All right. What is chili con carne? Chili con carne is chili with meat. Right. In other words, chili with flesh. Chili con carne. It's the same idea here is spirit with flesh, spirit with a body. God became in flesh. God on our turf. God walking by our rules. God walking in our realm instead of us walking in his. And they call that the incarnation. It was God manifesting himself in a way that we could understand. Scripture says that God is so beyond our thinking that his ways are so much higher than our ways that we can't really track all of his thoughts. God had to come up with a very creative way to help us understand him. And so he decided he would become one of us. And by becoming one of us, he would paint a picture, a portrait, so to speak, of a personality that we would be able to trust and respond to so that when we knew, when we were thinking about God, if we looked at Jesus, we'd have the right portrait. You can look that up in Hebrews 1. All right? And that is where this word incarnation comes from. Now, if you want to get theological, scholars, Bible scholars have called this the hypostatic union. Doesn't that sound charming? Right? The hypostatic union. The idea there is they were trying to reconcile how does this work where you have a God nature and a flesh nature put together. And so in Jesus, in this baby that we celebrate as communion, he has two natures that are united together and can't be separated. One is the nature of being the eternal son of God. And the other is the nature of being human. In all respects, human, just like us, except one thing. Yet without sin. All right? Think about how good human would be yet without sin. All right? You don't even have to be a theologian to think about how different would your life be, just you, just the way you are, without sin. Think about that. All right? And we're talking, that is what Scripture is saying about Jesus, is that he was among us, yet he didn't have the effects of the fall in his nature as a human. And so he was in the effects of the fall, but he didn't have the effects of the fall in his nature. And therefore it says that the first Adam, Adam and Eve, the first Adam, all have died because of him. In the second Adam, Jesus, all have been brought alive in him. And because of... His, this hypostatic union, he was able to do for us what we weren't able to do for ourselves. There's a theological view of Christmas. Um, when uh, Mary was told by Gabriel that she was to be the mother of the Son of God, the Theotokos, the God carrier, she said this, how, how is this going to be? Since I'm a virgin, good question. Fifteen-year-olds can ask good questions sometimes. Then the angel answered and said, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And so in Scripture, if you look at the genealogies through Mary and Joseph, you can trace Jesus' lineage all the way back to David or all the way back to Adam. If you look through, there's all kinds of stories in those genealogies of how God, back in the garden when Adam and Eve first sinned, said, I will 
bring a Savior. Your seed will march through history and it will culminate in a person of a Savior, one who is the Christ, uh, the Messiah, the one who saves their people from their sin. This is a very important doctrine. Uh, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, anybody remember that name? Lewis Sperry Schaefer, Bible scholar, quite a, quite a guy and uh, well worth reading. Um, but if you're young and you don't know that name, he was a, a, a theologian back in the 40s and 50s. And he said that uh, the importance of the doctrine of the incarnation falls within seven of the great doctrines uh, or the great miracles that God has done in the history of not just the world, but in the history of the universe. All right? And let me lay out the seven for you that he lays out. So this is taken from him. He says, the first miracle was the creation of the angels. We don't often think of that, right? Because we kind of think angels were always there. And we kind of think about the fact that, sure, there was a Gabriel, and sure, there was, uh, you know, there's a Michael, and there's other angels that we don't know their names of, but they've always kind of been around. We think of a guardian angel. We think of those kind of concepts. But we don't think about the fact that the angelic host was created by God. And that angelic host has an incredibly important role to play in the history of the universe. They are seen as God's messengers and they show up at critical and important times when God is doing something unique. The second thing he says is the creation of the uh, material things, including our earth. You know, the earth is absolutely unique in the universe. If you watch uh, on the internet, uh, scientists are going way out of their way. They are going triple time trying to find something out there that resembles our planet. Some type of solar system, some type of planet, some type of star that could be a match so they can say there could potentially be life on that planet. But the problem is none of them fit. When you go out in space, you know what you get a whole lot of? You get a whole lot of space. You get a whole lot of dark. You get a whole lot of light. You get it, But you don't get a lot of green. Okay? You don't get a lot of water and you don't get a lot of air. This planet is so unbelievably unique. It is the gemstone of the universe. And Schaefer's saying this planet is one of the most incredible creations that God has ever created. It is unique unto itself. Then the third one that he taps on is the one we're talking about this morning, the incarnation. The idea that God would creatively reinvent himself to come on our turf. There's, uh, you've probably heard all the illustrations that it, uh, God wanted to come and know us, and if we were birds, he'd have to become a bird so he could talk in bird language, right? And we'd understand, because we understand what birds are like. And God came to communicate his presence to us by being one of us. And Schaefer says, this is unparalleled in the annals of human history. Uh, this story right here. The fourth one is the death of the incarnate one. Christmas always points towards Easter. It, it focuses that way. The target is aimed that way. And there was a Christmas has a purpose, and the purpose was Easter. And so it telegraphs that way. And obviously, the death of Christ on the cross... What Jesus paid for the weight of sin of the sin of the world is an incredible miracle 
Who would ever think that a sinless one would die for sinners like us? I've said this before in church, but if you're new or visiting, uh, one of the problems with getting older is you can see your sin from 30 years ago in ways you couldn't see it when you were 30. And as you look back, you go, oh, yuck, that's what that really was? And I find myself uh, going back to God, not asking for forgiveness because I know He's already forgiven it, but going back and apologizing. Because I say to Him, you know what? I know you've forgiven me, but it's just occurred to me 30 years later what that really was and how ugly that really was. And I can't cover my tracks. Could I come and apologize? Because that's what you actually forgave, not what I thought you forgave. Wow. I don't know about you, but that's a mind-bending concept to me. Right? Then, of course, the resurrection. Right? The only thing that tops his coming is his coming back, right? His rising from the dead. Uh, You don't see too many people do that, right? I've just conducted a funeral this week and uh, nobody expected the person to walk in the room, right? It's a pretty permanent thing. And we have here something absolutely unique in the annals of human history, the resurrection of a person from the dead in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, Schaefer says his coming again, his, his return will be uh, this time not in the form of a baby, but in the form of the conquering king, the one who will return to rule uh, the heaven and the earth. And then his last point is uh, his reign on earth forever. Scripture says this will get rolled up like a scroll. It's going to go out like a bunch of old rags. And it's going to be brand new. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be the new Jerusalem, an incredible city that comes down. And won't need lights because God will be the light for it. It says that the coming at Christmas had a very intentional purpose. Now from human standards, all this took a lot of time. But Scripture says, you know, for God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So he's rolling it out in his epochs and eras. But if you find walking through, you, if you look at that, uh, the first five happen pretty clearly, then it's pretty sure to bet the last two are going to happen. And so when we come to Christmas, when we come to the incarnation, we're talking about one of the great miracles of the world. Not just of the world, of the universe. And when we do, oops, there, I went too fast. One of the things I want us to consider for this Christmas as we go through this series is not does, what does Christmas look like for you this year? What does Christmas look like through God's eyes? This is a little hard for us sometimes to get a handle on because we know what Christmas means to us. We know what Christmas means for us, right? And uh, it, there's a, a lot of good stuff. But the question I want to put on the table this morning What does it mean for God? How does it look to Him? See, it's one thing to see someone do something. Right? We do this all the time. You see somebody do something. And as you watch them do it, you can posture some reasons for why they do it. But most of the time, we really don't know why somebody else has ever done that. Husband and wives, you ever do that? 
Right? You look at him and go, why did you do that? Right? Because. Right? That's a great explanation. And then you, you wrestle with, well, what was behind that? Again, I may know that someone has done something for me, but I may not be able to say what their motive was for doing it. You ever have somebody do something for you and, thanks. Wow, I didn't, why did you do that? Right? I didn't even expect that. So when it comes to today, and I talk about Christmas and what was God's motive, there's a lot of rampant speculation regarding God's motives to this planet. Some are as benign as he's kind of a feeble old guy up in outer space somewhere, and he created this clock that he wound up, and then he set it down somewhere, and he forgot where he put it, but it's still running, and when he remembers where he put it, he'll get back to paying attention to it again. That's, that's kind of one kind of benign thing you'll kind of pick up in our culture. But the other, the other ones are um, much more sinister in their speculation. It kind of goes along these lines. God is a terrorist. He's the ultimate control freak. He's actually a menacing threat. He is the greatest bent eagle in the universe. And to be guarded against and held at bay at all costs. Because the ultimate wicked person that you could be in relationship to would be God. That religion is bad for people. Faith is bad for people. And God's bad for people. Right? Think of that for a second. Here's the point as you wrestle with that. Because you may be saying, wow, that's not how I think about it. The truth is that all kinds of motives can be attributed to someone's actions. Right? They can be good or bad. But the fact of the matter is only the point of view that, re- that really matters uh, is what does the person who is performing the action say their motive is. Right? So ultimately when it comes down, I, if, like say you do something for me, Kara Cecil's my friend, she does gives me some chocolate. Thank you, Kara. All right? And I say, why did you do that? The only real explanation I have is if Kara tells me, well, Steve, I know you like chocolate and you did some stuff for us, so here's some chocolate for Christmas. All right? I only know that if Kara does that, if she tells me what her motive is. Many times uh, we have to speculate. Have you ever been sitting there and, and someone, usually this goes sideways the worst when it's the people close to you, so don't look at the people you're sitting next to this morning while I do this, right? But someone close to you, uh, you're sitting there and they are dissecting your motives. They're telling you why you did what you did. That's never happened? The guy's like, what? I don't get that. And, and they look at you and they go, here's why you did that. And you're sitting there going, that's not why I did that. Right? You ever been there? That's not even close. That's not why I... But they're going on pontificantly as if they sure they got your number and here's why you did that. And usually following very close behind that is and here's why you're wrong. Right? Which always adds icing onto the cake. Oh, thank you. You're blessing the heart out of me. That's beautiful. And usually we do two things when that happens. We get really mad or we go silent. Right? Fine. That's what you want to believe. Go right ahead. Now there's another flip on this. When somebody's telling you what your motive is and they're close, but they have to peg you 100% to get you. And they've only got 85%.
There's that 15% back here they don't know. So as they tell you your motives, you're going, yeah, keep going, keep going, keep going. Did they bring it up? Did they bring it? Nope, they didn't bring that up. Well, I guess you've got it discerned. You did a great job. You've got it all mapped. Good job. I never have to tell you about this back here, do I? Because you already know it all. So therefore, I don't have to tell you. Right? Parents, you ever get that with your kids? They leave out the 5% that changes the 95% of the rest of the story. Right? Of course, we would never do that, right? No. So, we know what our motives are. For example, there's a lot of different reasons why people come to church. You know why you came to church this morning. We can assume we know why most of us showed up here this morning. But I bet you if we sat down and could talk to every one of us, we would find an amazing array of motives for why we're here this morning. We know what our motives for Christmas are. You know, the lights, the presents, the food, the celebration of the season, family. Uh, that's, that's all really good stuff. But the question again I want to raise this morning is, what are God's motives for Christmas? What's his motives in and with and for Christmas? And I want to give you what, uh, what I found this week. I was looking through this. Zach and the team led us through some great songs that talk about the love of God. And there's some nuggets. They're all over Scripture. I just pulled two this morning. Um, this one... Uh, nope, I went backwards. Sorry. Let me get through that. There we go. It found in Ephesians 2, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of what? The great love with which He loved us. In other words, that's stating God's motive right there. That's telling you why he did what he did. That's telling you why he came. That's telling you why he died on the cross. That's telling you why he rose again. What was the motive behind the action? It wasn't to be uh, the King Kong of the universe. It wasn't to be the ultimate control freak. It wasn't to, that he could let us know how bad we all were or that kind of stuff. What was the motive behind all the actions that Jesus took? It was so that he could show us the great love that God had for us with which he loves us, which which he loved us. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. In other words, he did this when we had nothing to bring to the table. How do you discern a motive? Usually you can tell a true motive because they aren't getting anything out of it. Right? It wasn't that we had done something really great and then he said, well, you know, you've responded pretty good. I think I'll hand you salvation. Now there was nothing on the table we could bring. He did it while we were still in our sin. And he reached out to us. It says right here, we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. Why did he make us alive? Because of the great love with which he loved us. What's God's motive behind Christmas? Love. Real love. That's why he came. You know, often you think of a husband and wife, they make love and what's the result? A baby. Right? That's a pretty pure picture. God has that same kind of purity of motive. He wanted us to know that he loved us. Look at this one. That one doesn't convince you. For God's soul what? Loved. What's his motive? What's behind it? Why does he want to get our attention? Why does he want to be in relationship with us? Why does he want us to choose him? Why does he want us to step in faith towards salvation in him? Because he what? Loves us. 
Now, is he the ruler? Is he the king? Is he the sovereign? Is he omnipotent? Is he the judge? Is it, yes, he's all those things. But those, all those things are that person who what? Loves us. And so when it comes to the incarnation, God was trying to tell us, I love you. I love you a lot. I love you enormous, huge gobs. I want you to know how much I love you. And in this, he played a particular role. Uh, in uh, Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, there is the role of the kinsman redeemer. In Romans 15, it says, 8, 15, it says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery. Right? In other words, God isn't interested in making us all slaves and clones. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. Right? There's something marvelous about adoption. Right? Uh, what's marvelous about adoption, there's no such thing as an accidental adoption. You didn't just wake up and go, Oh, we adopted a kid. What should we call it? Right? That doesn't work that way. Okay? The adoptions by nature are always intentional. They are purposeful. And God's trying to communicate that his adoption of us is intentional. He wants to be our father. The word Abba there is daddy. Right? And so he wants to be in that kind of role with us. So in this role of kinsman redeemer, uh, in the Old Testament... If something happened to the head of the family, uh, an unfortunate accident or a death or that kind of stuff, usually in those days families were larger and there were other uh, brothers or, or close cousins. And if something like that actually happened, then the next closest person in the family line would be what's known as the kinsman redeemer. They were to step in that role and produce a family and take care of the property so that the family and the property stayed within the clans and tribes of Israel. Uh, the story of Boaz and Ruth is a famous story of a kinsman redeemer who's come to redeem um, what had fallen out there in that story. And so it says, Jesus, as the kinsman redeemer, came to redeem that which was lost. That which was no longer uh, going to stay in the family. That which was suddenly had lost its place. Jesus came back looking to redeem with his love those who were lost. To redeem that which had been broken. Um, and adoption paints such a great picture. Last month it was November, and most, most of us know November as No Shave November, right? And uh, guys all grow their beards out and look gnarly and look like Grizzly Adams and that kind of stuff. I don't grow mine out anymore because it's white and I look like Moses. Right, so I have enough self-identity issues without doing that to myself, right? So, um, but did you also know that November is Adoption Month? Right? Did you hear about that? I didn't know about that. The only reason I knew about that is Krista Bond. She's sitting over there. Emailed me and said, "Hey, Steve, did you know November is Adoption Month?" I went, "Never heard of it before." And uh, there's a reason that Krista and Peter are very aware of uh, November as Adoption Month because they as a family are actively involved in the process of adopting. They have just adopted um, Sam, Samuel, and Estefanos, Estif, and uh, they were both running around here last night helping out and doing stuff and pitching in, and now it's become public knowledge. I'm safe to say this. They are adopting a third son, 
Okay, test fee is coming. Give them a hand. That's really good. So for them, adoption isn't a neutral issue. They're very passionate about it. Trust me, just ask them. And, and, you know, I was talking with Peter in the hall and I was joking. And he says, you can tell I'm kind of passionate. I said, well, good, Peter. Just remember, that's what God called you to. He didn't, that's, what, that's not what he called me to. So if, if I have to adopt, then you have to preach on Sundays. He goes, we're good. Okay. Right. We had some fun with it. But they are passionate about this topic because it is in the wheelhouse of what God's done. They will tell you they have come to understand the love of God in a way they never knew before. All right. And uh, it, it's quite a deal, and it, the effect and their family, they can talk uh, quite extensively on it. And if you ever get a chance, take them out for lunch or something and hear the story. It is profound. But many others in our fellowship have adopted as well. As a matter of fact, our own Rob Henry. Rob Henry, right, is our junior high director here and, and leads the whole junior high and Rob Henry is adopted, right? Did you know that? Yeah, we've got, so we've got all kinds of people that fall into that category. Um, and so Krista was telling me about Adoption Month, and she sent me this video, and it painted such a, a great picture of this kinsman redeemer adoption picture of Jesus coming, trying to tell us how much he loved us, that I wanted us to see it. It's not very long, so check this picture portrait of adoption as we watch it together. I'm going to ask the uh, communion servers if you'd come forth and, and begin to serve communion for us. Thank you very much. That's the Dennehy family that you saw in there. And Mike, who's the dad, uh, later on in the video, we paused it there. If you want, you can download that on YouTube. But uh, he says this. He says, it took me decades to learn. He says, it took me decades to learn it, but I finally learned is that there's no physical thing that you can buy that will give you peace and happiness. And if you listen to his story, he was talking about family and retirement and all the things and that kind of stuff. And as these kids kept popping on the screen, you could tell his wife would come up with another. It kind of threw a lot of that out the window. And uh, he says that he started to realize it was the children that made his life the power that it was, uh, not the stuff that he had. And when you think about when God came to us, he said, you're more important than the stuff. That's not a message we get very often in in our culture. Christmas isn't about presents. It's about people. In that statement that Denna he made, it probably captures what God knew from the beginning. It was people that mattered. Not what we had to get for the people, but what we have with the people. He loved them so much he was willing to give up his position and privileges to ransom them. Philippians captures this really well in terms of his heart and nature. It says, who being in the very nature of God, that's saying uh, Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In another translation it says grasped, held on to, right? You ever of that closed fist kind of thing. So Jesus didn't consider it something he had to grasp or to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, becoming like one of us, born as a baby, and being made in human likeness. Further in Philippians 2.8, it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death 
on a cross. And again, Christmas telescopes to Easter. Christmas points that direction. He came because there was a, a critical need. And I think it's, it's just really a wonderful thing as we have the first Sunday of the Christmas season, as we march towards Christmas, we think that we have communion together. You know, if you think about communion, and as uh, we talk about having communion together, there's a lot of different pictures uh, about communion, but if you take Christmas and move towards Easter, when you ask God, well, how much do you love me? And Jesus says, I love you this much. You know anybody else who would do that for you? That's why we should be the most grateful people on the face of the planet. Because we were adopted intentionally. He went out to find you and he went out to find me and he's out there looking to find others and that's why we need to cooperate with that process. We don't create that process. We cooperate with that process. And so as when it comes to communion, there's a couple pictures that are really important. It says, first of all, you want to know how much I love you? This, this little piece of bread here that you've got, think about that. That represents my body. Think about what it cost me to love you. Think about what it took. Think about the toll. Uh, scripture says, you haven't come to the point of shedding your blood yet, but Jesus did. He says, eat this in memory of me. And then the cup. Obviously a symbol of the blood, but another symbol, symbol of wine. Jesus says, I will not drink this cup till I come back. Come back for what? Come back to get you. This is a symbol of celebration. You know, it's much more akin on the level of a wedding feast, Right? Uh, wedding feasts are great celebration. You ever been to a great wedding where it's all right and it all works and it's done the way it's supposed to and everything rolls and what's the spirit of that like? Man, it's a get-together, right? As we used to say in Wisconsin, it's a hoot, right? And the idea behind that is he's going to come back for what he loves. He's going to be looking for the people that he loves. That's how he came. That's how he's coming back. He says, drink this in memory of me. How many of you remember the Billy Graham Crusades? How many of you remember a name of George Beverly Shea? Remember that name? Okay, now if you're younger and you don't, let me tell you about him. Billy Graham had Crusades. He had two guys that sang solos for him over the years. One was George Beverly Shea, and the other one was Cliff Barrows. Cliff often led the choirs more than he sang singly, but he also started out as a soloist for Billy Graham. But the guy who rocked the whole thing from the beginning... When God started to use the Crusades, and first it was in the thousands, and then it was tens of thousands, and then it went into the millions, the guy who uh, led it was George Beverly Shea. And he made a lot of songs famous, some incredibly great songs. Uh, But there was one um, that kind of became the telltale signature song about uh, what the Crusades were about. And it's a song called The Love of God, right? And uh, it is an incredible expression of what we've been talking about this morning. And so if you know it, I want you to think, if you've never heard it before, enjoy. It's rich. 
But would you stand this morning and let's in thankfulness sing this back to the Lord for last night and step by step and all the people. There was a, a couple of ladies from India last night who walked, had never been in the doors of a church, had never walked in, didn't know what a church looked like. And they walked in and they met people who loved them, had never met them before. This song reflects that spirit. Worship what together, would you?